Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. First, let me just go ahead and say before I bring this person up here that I have been a fan of hers for decades, years, because I feel like it was just yesterday I watched her in The Secretary, but it is beyond cool to now welcome to the stage an actress, producer, and soon-to-be director, and just all-around awesome artist, Miss Maggie Gyllenhaal. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, we, get, yeah. we can't get too close. Uh, the, the sound guy's like, why'd y'all do that? Don't be, don't be friendly. Um, I'm, I'm so excited to do this because, like I said, I, I feel like your career has just been so an exemplary of a person who, when they choose roles, is fearless. And I think you've exemplified that from one of your early roles that really kind of broke you into, I think, the consciousness of a lot of folks, and that was The Secretary, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. And I think that film perfectly embodies, again, how you would then go about the rest of your career and your choices, but also embodies like the heartbeat of independent cinema because that film premiered there and it just had this explosion. So talk about, first of all, getting cast in that and then also like how it, it kind of became this like cult favorite among so many folks. Huh, okay, you've said so many things I want to respond to. First, I like, I'm, I'm not fearless. <laughs> like, full of fear, actually. Um, <laughs> even right now. <laughs> um, so there's that. And then, so secretary. Yeah, um, actually, as you were just talking about that and saying how was I cast in it, I, as you say, I'm, I'm directing a film that I'll direct in the summer, and so I've just been, for the first time, thinking about casting from the other side and thinking about it, obviously, with so much compassion and empathy because that's one of the... And, and am I talking to a room of actors here? Yeah. yeah. So, obviously, I, I do think auditioning and, and that is such a complicated thing of, like, finding desire in yourself, allowing yourself to want something, being, you know, having to tolerate um, the possibility of not getting it, often not getting it, um, having to sit for long periods of time with like maybe and going on fantasies of getting to do a role that you might never actually get to do. So I have a lot of compassion for that. That's been like the last 20 years of my life. Um, and Secretary was a tough one with that. I mean, I went in and auditioned. I was thinking about that audition. Uh, recently working with an actress. And Steve Shainberg, who directed that, did like a kind of a work session with me. First I read for the casting director, maybe I read again, you know. And we were like absolutely on the same page. Like I remember he gave me maybe five notes, which is quite a lot uh, after, I mean, I don't remember this like really super clearly, this was a long time ago, but I remember like him giving me many notes and just going like, yep, 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 like I get that. 
And, um, and then after that, it was like, like maybe even a year. My manager's here and she was with me then. I don't know where she is, but we were like waiting for that part. And he offered it to everybody else. I was total unknown. He offered it to like every actress who was great. There's a few names that, you know, they thankfully didn't accept it because you were perfect for it. <laughs> but it was, it was hard. It was yeah. painful because I, I read it. And even, even in the beginning, I knew like, Lee. what was right for me. Yeah. I was like, that's right for me. You know, and I had to do parts. And uh, I really try not to anymore, but especially in the beginning, parts that I wasn't like, oh, yes, I, that's right for me. So just have to do them sometimes. But. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I think about, obviously, I get it. It's an independent film. You're going to want to maybe, you know, offer it to names. And I, I get that. Like, but I can't picture anybody else being Lee Holloway at this point, because I've watched that film a ton of times. And it was a film that people like passed around like the, the VHS. Yes, I'm dating myself and said, you've got to see this movie. This is before the internet and message boards and, and where you could just go online and be like, Maggie Gyllenhaal's amazing and secretary, go see that yeah, movie. But there were like DVDs. Yes, was there not was a long ago. But there was, I had it on VHS. I had it on VHS because we were broke. <laughs> I didn't get a DVD until 2006. Um, but so it did have this cult status and I'm sure you felt it where like it was the thing that people would come up and be like, you're in that movie that, you know. I mean, it was like a crazy dreamy time. I, I mean, that... I remember going to the editing room to see some of that movie and just sitting with Steve in the editing room and he just showed me some scenes and I was like, yeah, it's <laughs> really good. Yeah. And, and I don't always have that feeling, although I'm always, I am always in an editing room and now I've been in editing rooms in all sorts of different ways, like looking at cuts of films, giving notes on the whole thing. Um, like with the deuce, the pa the end of this season, I was in the editing room for a few scenes of mine yeah. where I was like, I don't think you quite understood what I meant. And instead of having to write four paragraphs about what I meant, can I just come in? Yeah. And they were like, yeah, you know, but at that point, and still when I watch movies where I'm not involved in the cut, uh, what I'm looking for is like, is what I meant to express or like the experience that I had in the movie. Mm. And sometimes it isn't, and it's really heartbreaking. I think I veered off whatever you asked me, but. No, no, that's <laughs> actually, this is what's so great about it is because like I, like I said, I, I would just talk about the movies that you were in and we could pretend like we were just kicking it at my house because they're all such films that I love. And I think like a next- Let's do that. It's yeah, really like, like let's, don't worry about veering off. This is, okay. this is great because another film that you did um, soon after The Secretary was another just incredible role uh, in Mona Lisa Smile, which I think also exemplifies you don't necessarily have to be the girl on the poster to have a very memorable character. I don't think anyone who sees that movie doesn't remember your character and understand it. I know you said that you knew that girl kind of being like growing up a little bit in, mm. in on the East Coast type of thing. So talk about her and, and getting cast and having like one of your first movies, like this huge female cast with, you know, Kristen Dunst and, and, and Jenny and like everybody else. And how how that how amazing that was really everybody else like julia roberts yeah and julia roberts yeah and julia roberts obviously um well i yeah i was like a little well oh no i think 
secretary had been to Sundance but hadn't been released. And so I've gotten the like jolt of confidence that came from having, so, so I feel secretary was the first time I had been given a job where I was able to actually express myself. Like I tried with the smaller roles or the roles that weren't quite right, but I got them and I knew I had to take them and do them. I tried to express myself, but I didn't know how. That's a really hard thing to do in like a small part that you're not meant to play to like really express something. And I didn't really know how. Secretary was the first time I had the space. I had support. And then to have that come back to me, like at Sundance felt, I got, a, I got confident in a different way. And so then when I, when I went to set on Mona Lisa Smile, I don't know, yeah, I felt like wild. <laughs> I was like, I was, I, um, yeah, I still held with me some of the, the real um, freedom that I had made for myself on secretary. I'll tell you something interesting about secretary, which is that I had a teacher for many years, an acting teacher who died maybe three years ago, right around when David Bowie died. And she was almost 80, but I worked with her on almost everything. Um, and I didn't know her when I made Secretary, but she was working with Steve Shaneberg, the director. So I was getting notes from her, oh, wow. even though I didn't know her. And so there was this feeling created on that set of like real freedom, amazing support for actors. So I took that with me to Mona Lisa Smile and I just ran with it. And I had, had shown, I invited Mike Newell, the director, to the premiere of Secretary and he was really into it. So he gave me space. Nice. And that was great. And I loved all the women who were on it. And I particularly loved Julia Roberts. Mm -hmm. And she um, is, I think, a force, a force of nature. I heard you say that like she gave you some advice like on that set of like what was it about speeches I think you were saying well yeah. I, when secretary then came out and I for the first time had like you know award stuff and speeches to give and she said to me um, don't write down every word of what you want to say think about it and then get up there and dare yourself to wing it wow but I recently saw my best friend's wedding for the first time wow <laughs> <laughs> Because I like live in a cave or something. I don't know how that You're happens. You're a little busy. You're a little busy. Um, but I have a 13-year-old who was interested in watching it, and I was sort of watching over her shoulder, and I was like, "She's she, Julia Roberts is incredible." Like, there's a scene in the beginning where she hears that um, her her friend is getting married, yeah. and she like falls off the bed. That you is know? like there is so much slapstick comedy. It's like in Lucille that. Ball. Yes, it is so great. But Julia Roberts, style. yeah, yeah. No, it's incredible, and yeah, I, I think I wanted to talk about this too because you're you come from a, a, an actor and artist family. So I just felt when I was watching you in that, and then I went to go like find more about you. I'm like, she must know this girl, or at least have known this girl in her youth or adolescence. Ah, uh, well, I didn't grow up on the East Coast. Not the East Coast, sorry. Yes. Yeah, I grew up here. Yeah. Um, Although I always find in this room, like, I forget what city I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Last year I was here too, and yes. I was like, wait, where am I? Yeah. <laughs> um, LA. Yeah. LA. I like, just got off a plane. Yes. <laughs> Forgive me. Uh, Giselle, I guess I really, the thing I really I decided about her was that she was wild. 
Mm. So yeah, I mean, did I know people who were wild? <laughs> <laughs> yes, like like wherever I could, I was like just just do something uh, radical. Yeah, you know, and it gave me a lot of energy and um, yeah. Yeah, and um, I will say that, yeah, Giselle's one of my favorite characters. And I think everybody, when you have like those big ensembles, you pick the girl that you're like, okay, that was me. And maybe this is staying too much, but I was very much like, okay, I get Giselle. <laughs> right, right. Very well, slightly re rebellious. But um, another character that you had that. Um, I remember I when I saw Lady Bird, I was like, I wish that's what I looked like in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if someone had done my hair and makeup, maybe. <laughs> That's so what I was wishing I looked like. I, you were you were gorgeous. <laughs> so, yeah, but I mean the look and the yes, whole thing. I was vibe. going for that. Yeah. yeah. No, everybody was, was going for that. Yeah. You can only make it look that good when you then make the movie and then recast it with wardrobe and makeup. <laughs> nobody looked that good in the nineties. Uh, I, I really related to her did. though. Anyway, even though she looked better than me. Um, another character that you did, and I know. Like you did a ton of research to kind of portray her in that Sherry Baby, which was the first film that you were nominated for a Golden Globe and portraying this addict trying to desperately to get her life back together. So talk about that research process, because I know like in a room full of actors, that's like step one, I think, with everyone. Um, yeah, I mean, well, that was a world I really didn't know anything about. Sherry Baby is about a, a girl who um, went to prison when she was young, had a very small child, went to prison for uh, drugs, and um, gets out of prison when the movie starts and uh, has to try to get her daughter back from her brother who's been taking care of her daughter. Um, so yeah, I spent time with Laurie Collier who directed that, going to halfway houses, women's prisons in the city. The movie takes place in New Jersey. and. Um, I did find that really helpful. Mostly I find, it's the same with the deuce, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that, but like I, I did a lot of research on that. And you know what I think research, this is a new thought actually, but I think research like that breeds compassion mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, although it can be very helpful too, uh, little details, exact details, oh, those things are helpful too. But the biggest way that I find research about someone whose circumstances are very different than yours is usually to find compassion. Um, and then I also think imagination is really helpful. I remember Lori, who was a wonderful writer and um, was great to work with. She once suggested to me that I sleep in my bathtub uh -huh. so that I would feel like how messed up she felt. And I was like, no, I'm going to use my imagination for that. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> um, but you're right. I think Roger Ebert has this great quote that filmmaking and great storytelling is an empathy machine. It can yes. drive empathy for folks in places that you wouldn't expect to put it before you were able to sit down with them for that time that you're in the film. Yes. And there's so many characters like you did that. Lee is a character where you feel empathy and then also Sherry Baby. And then let's go ahead and talk about the deuce because both in Sherry Baby and the deuce, there's not a lot of empathy for sex workers. Yeah. There, there is a lot of, you know, judgment. There's a lot of, yeah. a lot of that. And I think 
the beauty of Candy, as we've seen her through these seasons, is that you see like how in some ways, like where, what would you be if you were put in this position that she's in and trying to make her way through this world? And I, I, I think that's what, really why I love that character. And I know for a fact with you, that was one of the reasons that drew you to Candy is to kind of bring, you know, like a different look on this. I mean, I never, I, I never know when I'm really drawn to a character, like where I'm like, yes, <laughs> I don't know why. You yeah. know, I mean, there's, I can't quite tell why, but I do recognize that feeling. Um, okay, so again, so many things you said that I... <laughs> Sorry, I'm no, like giving no. you not enough. But talk about her being empathetic on, basically trying to bring a different side to a sex worker that I don't think a lot of folks, and not that many films for that matter, have given. Well, I have a lot to say about this. One is, I think, yes, that idea of an empathy machine, is that what you said? Or, or there, but for the grace of God go I. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think sometimes movies are um, kind of safe opportunities to practice empathy and relating to somebody who you might not otherwise relate to. But what I think is really interesting about sex workers and I now have played a sex worker for, for four years. So I've gone through all sorts of thinking and uh, interactions with, with real sex workers and feelings about it. And um, I think it's really interesting that we live in a culture um, where it is not acceptable to uh, mar you know, to, to disparage pretty much any marginalized group. It's just not okay. It's it's. I mean, it happens obviously with the president and all the time. But like, I mean, I mean, in in our cultural, like we're in this room. I think it would just be like totally unacceptable, probably in most of our social circles, to to disparage almost any marginalized group except sex workers. I mean, there are others too. But like, you're allowed to say like you're a whore. Nothing will happen to you. That hoe, whatever. It's a kind of okay. And I I find that really interesting. And I am. Um, I have a lot of thoughts as to why after having pretended to be a sex worker for so long. I think that, um, and this is a big part of the third season of The Deuce actually, and comes out of conversations that David Simon and I had socially. Oh, wow. um, I think that we have all agreed as a culture because um, women for hundreds and thousands of years didn't have access to uh, money in almost any way, except for marrying somebody or sex work, um, that that we do trade in sex, not not full on sex anymore, but uh, a whiff of sexuality, a possibility of sexuality. That's something that's had to be, at least for women in my generation, a part of your toolbox. And uh, we're backed into a corner. That's why we do that. It's not like that's what I, I don't think really what we want necessarily, but. But you know, I, I don't know anyone my age that hasn't, I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but like put on a push-up bra to get a job when the job had nothing to do with sex. Mm -hmm. Now that's different than having sex in exchange for work or money, but um, it's in the same uh, ca category. And I think that everybody, the men and the women who engage in that behavior, which I believe is actually all of us, are ashamed of it. Yeah. And I think we're like, you hold it, sex workers. We have nothing to do with you. And um, so I, I just find that so interesting. Why the hate? I mean, why? And why is it okay? Well, that's one of the reasons, I think. I think you, you pointed out to it, like the commoditization of sexuality has been so ingrained in our culture and we live it 
like you said, with a bit of shame that anyone who's overt with it, the thing that we're always the most critical of is the thing that hits closest to home. And I right. think there's like, there's just such a, yeah, you just, you've got, there's so much to think about it. Cause yeah, did I put on heels that day? Because yeah, I know he's gonna like the way my, you know, butt looks in those jeans and maybe then I won't right. have to deal with him later that day. Because there's all kinds of little I mean, small things. I mean, I think so many unconscious things that yes. we don't even know about it. And I think it's amazing that mm -hmm. the women coming up now are like, what? No. Yes. But but that's not how I was raised. And, um, or I, you know, that's just the culture we lived in. Yeah. And I think it's interesting with films like The Deuce where it's a period piece you see, again, when you look at films like that or Mad Men and how women had to exist and had to navigate things and we cringe at it. But then I think of like, you know, the, the interns that I talked to when I was going to speak at a film school and they look at some of the things that I have to do when I talk about, oh, you know, when I'm on camera, I have to wear my hair like this. And they're like, why? Yeah. You know, so it, it is. And I think with every year, with every decade, we're able to like push back from it even more. And I think that's why we have to have stories like the deuce out there because you have to see where we've come and then. yeah and also we have to take responsibility for it like i think about um there's that scene in the deuce in in season two where uh candy like goes in to get money for her movie yeah. from this producer <laughs> yeah. and and she's like having a great witty fantastic conversation with him in her best suit that she totally spent money on and she's like an artist talking to another artist or, or producer and um, and then he says, I'll give you them. I'll give you ten thousand dollars if you give me a blowjob, yeah. and um, and uh, it's very like the scene in Sherry Baby actually, yeah. Yeah. where she uh, goes in to try to get a job uh, after having been trained in prison, and she's really excited, and she's done lots of work with kids, and she's got all her papers in order, and you know she's twenty five years old, and she goes in and she's showing all the papers, and the guy says, if you show me your tits or you give me a blowjob yeah. or something like that, you know, I'll give you the job I want. And she does. And um, and David originally, when he was talking to me about that scene, David Simon, he said, I, she's got to walk out and just tell him to fuck off. And I was like, no, she can't. Because if she walks out as terribly sad as it is, then she's better than all the rest of us. Yeah. And of course, I would say probably very few people have exchanged blowjob for $10,000 in this room, but I do think that we've, we've, um, and maybe I'm wrong, I, I'm totally wrong. No judgment, no judgment, no judgment. It's also like a fraction of what her movie costs. Yeah. But, um, but I think many of us have compromised ourselves in ways yeah. that we later walked out of that room and went like, oh, that was, that was embarrassing. But I think, that's the power of that scene because I'm glad you pushed back on that because it is, it's, it's, it's that little chink and even what she builds upon that, that she, that's where she had to go. I, I really, I well, love- that's why, that is truly why women do have to be in leadership positions. Like, you know, if, if I wasn't there to say, no, David, you're David yeah. Simon. I know you're empathetic and you want to put yeah. the truth out yes. there. But let me tell you the truth. Yeah. The truth is this. And he went, great. Being a producer has such power as, as we all know. And I'm sure you know, and that's why I'm, I, we'll get into the film that you produced, The Kindergarten Teacher, but I know for a fact, like being in that producer's chair on that one, and then now what you're gonna do with The Lost Daughter, there's a different dynamic when yeah. you're not just a piece of somebody else's cog. Yeah, or like I love the thing in um, 
Fleabag in yes. season two, yeah. where 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 um, she uh, I won't give anything away. I really really won't. But there's she's like sleeping with this guy who she's not supposed to be. You know, he's not the right guy for her. And she does this whole thing about how she came nine times, <laughs> and and in like the kind of American Pie type of like I mean I would say kind of male. Thing we're used to, we'd all be like, yay, nine times, awesome. But it is implicit in that female-led story that that's just too many times. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is not like, No, that is, a, that is not even a great no, night. And, no. the, and you know that if you're, yeah, something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> wait a minute, but wait a minute, I have to add this. And then later in that same episode, when she gets the type of sex that but you can enjoy, I'm not yeah. gonna say who she's yeah. sleeping with, yeah. but she does get the type of sex where you're like, no, that orgasm is the right Once one. Yes, you know, yeah, make yeah. it count, sweetie. Yeah. Um, all, all love and, per- and worship to Phoebe B. Waller Bridge because that is some brilliant writing right there. You guys should work together. Iron Mountain Oh, can we all picture that for just one second? Okay, so let's get back to your filmography. Um, speaking of judgment, um, another character that you played, which is a smaller role, but I still think about her to this day because. You push your child, and we're talking about away we go. And <laughs> yeah. that character to me, I come from Austin, Texas. For those of you that don't know, that is the hippy dippy side of Texas. Um, that is, it's way more closer to Berkeley than it is to Dallas. And I know that woman. <laughs> I know that helicopter mom that is about you know whatever. And I just thought it was such a great role for you to have that kind of like comedy judgment. The the woman who says, "Don't judge me for having sex in the bed with my husband, but I will." surely judge you for placing your child in a stroller like I yeah I I lived for that character but talk about working in the comedic field because a lot of your roles are more serious but that one was just hilarious it's interesting it makes me think because like I watched a play recently where there were a bunch of actors who were judging their character and I was just sitting watching it and going like god this would be so much better so much even funnier if you if you weren't doing that like i feel like that's kind of 101 like get behind your character mm-hmm. but i i am making fun of that woman in there <laughs> but i'm but i'm making fun of her because i have a little bit of that in me you know i mean i i i understand i don't know i'm just trying to figure out how that works together cuz that was a great time and i liked it maybe i maybe would have been funnier if i had even made fun of her less if I'd owned it more, like just completely owned it, maybe it would have been hysterical. It. I, it was hysterical. <laughs> like, quit, quit deconstructing no, it. No, no, I'm just trying yeah. to. I'm just thinking about it now. I had a great time. I I knew Sam Mendes who directed it. Um, everybody was like actual. Maya Rudolph and yeah. John Krasinski were real comedians mm-hmm. and just like cracking everybody up all the time on set. I I I did. I just had a great time on that movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of shows because, again, living in like an independent space, both covering them and then also watching them, you hear so often, we didn't have any time, we didn't have any money, uh-huh. but then the end result is just this beautiful piece of just cinematic perfection. And I think Away We Go has that. And I know Secretary, you guys didn't have any money in no. any time. And right, then, talk about no money, no time. That's the <laughs> kindergarten teacher. Yes, that was what I was just about to say. Or the, Sherry Baby. Yeah, or yeah. Sherry Baby. Like both of those were like 20, 21 and 22 day shoots for I think both of those, like under 30 days, I know. Oh yeah, 22. Um, but the kindergarten teacher because all female, producing, directing, and, and no money, no time. 
But that film, I just, when I saw it at Sundance, I thought it was just such a great bookend, knowing that like the, the secretary kicks you off and then this feature film that you're producing. Oh no, is this the end? No, it's not the end. No, no, this is definitely not the end. But I love that bookend for you because like I remember knowing about the secretary at home when I just wanted to talk about film and then seeing you in this movie. And like, that's when I realized like, I was one of those people like, oh, Sundance is a thing because it had this movie. Oh. Like, I, like, I'm silly. I was like, oh, Barton Fink won the Palm d'Or. That can place is kind of cool. Like that was what yeah. the Texas girl and me didn't know about film. I, I just thought it was such a great moment for you to have that with the kindergarten teacher. So, but do talk about that female production crew mm. that was assembled and how y'all were able to make that little bit of perfect in that limited amount of time. Yeah. Well, hmm. it wasn't like a conscious decision to say we just want to work with women. Yeah. Um, it was that that script was telling the truth about something that, that you know, re, um, what's the word? Like women responded to it because we were kind of all like, I, I finished that script and I was like, I have to do that movie. And um you know, we had a, a male DP who I think also, well, I used to joke, like, he was a lo he's a lover of women. <laughs> but he, I think, also did really respond to it. I don't think you just have to be a woman. But um, look, I think we actually didn't have enough money to make that movie. And uh, on some level, that's because we were all women. And it was a story about a woman who was 40 and falling apart. and. Um, nobody wanted to pay for it. And yet, we are women and we're used to it and we're like, right, okay, now we're going to make the movie and we're going to make it happen. And yeah. I'm going to, you know, like. And then we're going to sell it to Netflix and then it's going to be a popular thing that people, like I have more people talk about that one because you can you can access it, you can touch it. You yeah, know? and that's actually been really amazing. I mean, I think, I think that's kind of an incredible thing that Netflix did is it opened up all these independent cinema, mm -hmm. even when it was like you had to send in the DVDs to Netflix, <laughs> yeah. to people all over the country who didn't have art house movie theaters in their, in, you know, in reach. Yes, yeah, so that's a perfect example of me. I grew up in a very small town in Texas. I cannot tell you how many times I ordered The Secretary on Netflix streaming queue. Like, I would just be like, you know what, I'm just going to keep it yeah. for a couple of <laughs> extra weeks or extra months. But yeah. But another thing with the kindergarten teacher, what I think was really interesting, is it dismantles a trope in a way that I found to be so interesting, and that's the white savior. For those of you that mm. don't know, it's this idea that you know a person of color or a marginalized person needs to be saved by this white person. If you've seen the movie Dangerous Minds, that's a white savior trope. Mm. Um, that is dismantled in this film because even when she's a savior, she's also a bit of a demon. Mm -hmm. And even when there's a moment of celebration because what her influence has done achieves great things she also causes great destruction mm -hmm. and her judgment and her thinking she knows better and i just loved how the film never really lets you feel what she is is she a savior mm -hmm. or is she a destroyer mm -hmm. how was it balancing when you're trying to portray that and know because i'm sure that's intentional from the script to keep it mm -hmm. where you don't find one so how did you keep it balanced where you it never feels one or the other well, I, I will speak to what you're talking about, about race. Um, you know, we were just looking for the best kid. Oh, wow. Uh, he was, um, I, I don't think he, he, his race was named in the yeah, script. Yeah, no. And um, it's very hard to find a child who could play this part. And the kindergarten teacher is about um, a, a child who this woman thinks is a genius poet. And he's five. 
And so it's really hard to, um, it was really hard to find. And we were open to five to seven years old um, and any, any ethnicity. Wow. And Parker, who is, his, his parents are Indian, um, he was the only one, you know? And I think it's interesting when something like that happens, um, what then happens to the story? Because if the idea is that people of many different ethnicities and races can play mm -hmm. many, many different roles, right? And yet the story will change based, depending on who's in it. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I think, I think if the story then has to, be, has to be about the ethnicity of the actor, then that limits very much who can play yeah. each part. So it's, it's complicated. And yet at the same time, like we were aware that, um, the, that the movie changes depending on who the actor is and what his ethnicity is. And, you know. So it was really interesting to hear people's responses to that. And I agree with you. She is, she's no kind of savior. No. You know? <laughs> I mean, she's a very, very problematic yeah. character. And how did I bounce that? Um, that is a place where I just 100% always believed in her. Mm. And um, I just never allowed anything else. You know, you if you the movie couldn't have handled it. Yeah, you don't judge your characters too, I think. Like you, I mean, you say she's like definitely not a savior, but I do think you like, but you want people to see her for everything that she is. Yes, I believe in her. I don't think she's, first of all, I don't think she's mentally ill. Yeah. I think that'd be a really different movie. Um, I think she's having a mental breakdown, but I do think that falling deeply apart is a part of being alive. Mm. And yeah. um, no, that's absolutely true. And that's happening to her. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I think, and I said this a lot when I was talking about that movie, um, I think that in some ways it's a cautionary tale about what happens when you starve a vibrant woman's mind. It's like, this is the horror movie. Yeah. That, yeah. that was the thing that I, I was, when I saw it at Sundance, I was like, oh my God, they made this horror movie without horror elements. And everyone was like, what? I was like, no, it is. It's, it literally is. And I loved how it had those dynamics. In some ways, it's this really sort of deep and interesting story about, you know, disaffected motherhood, failed motherhood. Mm -hmm. And then in other ways, it's like a horror story, mm -hmm. you know? And, mm -hmm. and then in some ways, if you look at it a certain way, it's um, the birth of an artist. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I, both of them are yeah. artists. Yes. You know, I think, I think um, that was one thing I loved about that movie and I think did have something to do with it being written and directed and produced and starring women was that it, it wasn't a genre that you're used to. Like, oh, is it a horror movie? Is it a thriller? Is it, as my friend put it, a French movie? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So true. You so know. true. Um, that je ne sais quoi. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I just I think it's absolutely brilliant. I, I do want to talk, um, since we're on Netflix streaming, let's, let's just shift on over to television because um, An Honorable Woman, which I, if you guys haven't seen, um, another Golden Globe nominated performance for you as well. And you had not done a ton of TV before that. I think like maybe just a couple TV movies even. But like, let's just say, this is why I say Fearless. Your first TV, this is kind of before peak TV, guys. Let me, let me go ahead and put this out there. Um, you're going to play this character and you're going to tackle Israeli-Palestine <laughs> where you're the, the main thing on the poster 
and this is your first starring limited series. So to me, yeah, that's fearless. I'm sorry. But I was terrified. <laughs> I mean, I was. I remember after the maybe third day of shooting The Honorable Woman, and I had my kids with me, and one of them was seven, and one of them was 14 months old in London. And I, I remember coming home from work and thinking like, I've never made anything that's eight hours long before. I've never held something like this on my shoulders and feeling really terrified. Like, can I, can I handle this? And then realizing that no, I couldn't handle all of that at once, but I could do one day at a time, one thing at a time, and that it was pretty understandable to feel a little freaked out, you know? Yeah. And then you get your feet under you and then you're okay. And then, you know, but. So I will say this, tackling like a limited series, like a lot of the, the thing that you hear a lot is like, oh, we just filmed eight mini movies. Like, I'm sorry, they're lying. <laughs> the days are totally different on television than yeah. they are on a film. Was that a bit of an adjustment? And then you guys filmed, where did y'all film that one? London and Morocco. Yeah, I was gonna say. So just talk about the process of maybe kind of, was there a big shift in gears in your process or was it just the same? Well. Um, so that was like the first long form television thing I did. And it was all written beforehand, all directed by one person and cross boarded, meaning, um, that we would shoot elements of, we didn't shoot the first episode and then the second episode. Uh, if a scene took place in her office, we would shoot all the office scenes from episode one, episode five, episode eight. So you may in one day be moving in between all the episodes. So, um, it felt quite a lot like making a massive movie. Um, really different than The Deuce, for example, where maybe you read the first two scripts, maybe, before you start shooting, and then as you're shooting episode two, somewhere in the middle, you get episode three. And then you're kind of working on episode three while you're still doing episode two. You have different directors every time. Um, it's a very, very different process. So I, I did feel like The Honorable Woman was sort of just like a massive movie. And I think the way, for me, and I think everybody's different, um, like I heard you kind of go, like make a noise of, of saying like, oh, you could shoot episode eight and episode one in the same day. It's, I just didn't worry about the accuracy in a kind of like logical, rational way mm -hmm. of following like an arc or something. I just played each scene. They slowly started to slot themselves in. And then I had some kind of point of reference, but I really didn't, I'm not good in any way with mathematical equations. <laughs> and I just didn't fuck with that. <laughs> but did they keep to a television timeline as far as your days? Like as far as like, cause television, it's the speed of it. I know like. Working in the UK is really different than working here. And I've okay. done it a lot. They do not go over 12 hours and they make their days. And I, as you've said, you know, like I came up on little movies. I know how to work fast. I know not to hold people up. I know, um, I just know how to do that. And I also know that if you're fundamentally aware of like, okay, what's the rhythm here? What's the vibe? Okay, I see, I need to be absolutely prepared when I come, whatever it is. If you sometimes need a little more time, then you can have it, mm. you know? Yeah, and I think it's the 
I mean, again, like to hear how you film that and that, that they needed to give you more than the Golden Globe nomination as far as I'm concerned, because that is not the same as some of these folks that may be like, you know, they've lived with this crew and they've just doing maybe like a second anthology of something or maybe they did shoot it like, OK, we're going to do episode one and like take their time. Like that is just such an incredible performance to know that in one moment you're probably crying in your office because this horrible thing happened and then you've got to go just treat it like the next, like the normal day to day. Yeah, but some, in some ways it's almost kind of, for me, it's almost kind of easier on those projects where you go like into the tunnel and then you work, 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 work super intensely. And then however many months later you come out. Um, it's hard when you're like really in and out. How do you keep your really your unconscious artistic heart open when you've got just regular life all the time? I mean, Honorable Woman, I was Every day I was at work, every day yeah. I was like, you know, really deep in this character. And so it gets a little easier. Okay. And nobody else, I don't think, would say that it was easy, but the proof is in the pudding. Not easy, not yes, easy. Yes. Tons of work, Tons so of work. hard. But there's something nice about like, you know, just going in and being in it every day. Yeah, head yeah. down. Yeah. Um, going in it, that reminds me because. Um, your Oscar-nominated performance for Crazy Heart alongside Jeff Bridges. Um, I I heard you say on this one that you didn't want to talk to Jeff before you were doing it. Like you want, you were a little like I was just I was just scared. There it is again. I was just shy. I was scared. He was like calling me. Hi, Daddy. It's Jeff. Like leave me messages, and I was like, oh my god, I don't. How do I? I, I don't. How do I call him back? I don't know. <laughs> I actually think my manager who's here tonight maybe was like, Maggie, you have to call him back. <laughs> like Jeff Bridges like is happened. stalking you and you're about to do a movie together. No, yeah. I'm kidding. But, uh, how, but yeah, I just was shy. How did you break through that though? Because I know like in that story, for those of you that haven't seen it, it's a, it's a tragic, basically a tragic Western love story. Like mm -hmm. These two are never going to have happiness. They're never going to be together. But you have to literally want them yeah. to be together the That's whole right. movie. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Is of course, a tragic love story only yeah. works if you know they can't be together and yet wish with everything you have that they would be. So how did I get over it? Well, it's easier. This, here's the thing. Like, life is, is harder than acting and more vulnerable. The stakes will always be different. So fiction helps make you braver. And so as soon as we were there and working, we had the fiction of the pretend people that we were playing to protect us. And then I'm really good <laughs> at, going, at going deep. You yeah. know, it's easier for me. Um, and Jeff, of course, is a total lover. Mm -hmm. And the first time I met him, he just embraced me. And I think we had two separate cars to go to some rehearsal. And he was like, I get in my car. And, <laughs> started playing me music and I just went like, right. I actually had the exact thought that you just said where I was like, okay, we have to truly love each other. Yeah. Or this movie isn't going to mean anything. Yeah. That is like a, it's, it's so like between the like beautiful music, if you haven't listened to it, because the soundtrack of it is like, you want to play it and like listen to it. Like it's a pop, like a country album. Um, you're just crying over these folks, like yeah. literally through the through the whole thing. I, I love like that tragic western. It, it it's just incredible. That was a great set too. We were all in love, oh. all of us. You know, yeah. we were in Santa Fe, a little altitude. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I do want to talk about this because not very many people, and I think everyone in this room, if maybe some of y'all have already been there, have not had the night of the Oscars. Mm. And like that moment where you like, because if you don't know, like the Oscars is like, it's not just the night. Like it's like kind of doing a little marathon of events before you get to the night. And everybody that you're in the nomination class with is like the people you graduated college with. Mm -hmm. And so you like see them over and over again and mm -hmm. it's like, oh, there's this person again. So who was in your class <laughs> that year? And and what was it like graduation night? <laughs> well, I actually had an unusual experience yes, with that. Yes. I mean, like I have been in that situation like, um, like the first season of The Deuce, you know, you do like all those round tables and you see all the same women and, <laughs> you know, it's Elizabeth Moss yes. and Jessica Lange and all these people and you're all doing that. Oh, you're like, oh, you're doing the LA Times thing where you sit around yeah. and talk, oh, so are you, okay, you know. Um, and yet with Crazy Heart, um, I wasn't nominated for anything, anything. else. Not no, anything. you were still going to the stuff. I was, for I was. It. We were yes. doing press yes. for our movie. Yes. Um, it was very last minute that our movie was in that game. <laughs> Um, and so we kind of, they just kind of pushed us out and we were, yeah, <laughs> doing everything. Yes. Four Q and A's a night. And I was like, yeah. But mostly I was with my crazy heart people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember one actress, I won't tell you who, the morning of the Oscars, they, they, you wake up early and they call you and everything. And then you go down to, I think to like a hotel and, and they, interview you and everything. And this one actress who had been in that game looked at me and she went, you must be so surprised. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot to mention this. So Maggie is one of the like, if you want an Oscar, like want to win a pool because she wasn't, yeah, because of when the thing horse. premiered, she wasn't eligible for certain things. And then like the movie comes out and it's like, oh, well now you, cause it was like, it took a while to get it finished. And then like literally it comes out and then go to the Oscars. And to that actress, yeah, you don't need to be in it the whole time if you're that good. But I'll tell you the funny thing. I'll tell you the funny thing. I totally was the dark horse. There was no way I was yeah. going to win. I knew that. I was absolutely fine with that. But at the moment when they like do the thing and, and they say your name and they put your huge scene up on the screen and stuff and you're like, and then the winner of everything that year, if you remember, was Monique. Yes. And so then they get up and they're like, and the winner is Monique. <laughs> <laughs> and even though I like 100% knew I wasn't going to win, for one second uh, I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's like a great gift of, I think like Taylor Swift one year thinking that her name was about to be called and she was like, oh. So good thing no, you I like. No, I didn't like really yes. think No, it. I know you didn't, I but just, it's better like, to went, be. I went on the fantasy so hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say about that night, I made a really strong effort. I was like, all I want to do is be there, experience it, and like have a good time. Yeah. And I did. That's awesome. Yeah. Good times. That's the best way to do it. We're going to move on to y'all's questions now. I am so sorry. There were so many questions. So if I didn't get to yours, please know it wasn't for anything other than there's already like 20 here. And so I'm cutting this 30 minutes short just to go through y'all's questions. So I'll get to as many as I can. This one I'm going to do the top and this is from Jeff. And I love this question. Who are your favorite actors and actresses from the golden age of Hollywood? So like mm. early, I'll go ahead and say I really liked um, Montgomery Cliff. I just think it's mm. just amazing. Well, okay. So I just um, I just watched Woman of the Year. Oh, wow. 
Katherine Hepburn and Spencer yeah. Tracy, and I, <laughs> I had never seen it. And I, there's a part in it where she's kind of drunk. They're trying to drink each other under the mm -hmm. table. And she's lying on his chest. And um, I think she says, wait, let me see if I can remember this right. I think she says something like, would you love me even if I wasn't drunk or something like that? He said, oh, no, fuck. Let me remember what it is. I remember this oh, scene. He says, he says, um, Oh God, I gotta think of what the line is, but basically what he was saying, and you knew Spencer Tracy was saying it to her, was even though you're brilliant and it's hard for me, I love you. Yeah. And I just wept. I just started weeping. I love, I, so, and I've been, then I got on a, a kick of their movies and watched them with my kids. Hepburn. Yeah. I also, um, Billy Holden, like, I was watching Sunset Boulevard the other day, and because we were talking about, uh, I did an interview with a silent film um, historian, and I was just talking about, like, how they all got discarded. And then when um, certain, there's, there's a thing going around where, where actors get discarded in Hollywood. When the studio system happened, mm. a lot of female filmmakers got pushed out for men, and when the silent era happened, it got pushed out, and I was just thinking about, like, Billy Holden and Sunset Boulevard and mm. like the disaffected writer and of course Miss Norma Desmond. Yeah. Mm. Everybody just go watch TCM. It's the best thing in the world. <laughs> and you can talk to my you can watch my friend Alicia Malone who did your conversation at TIFF. Oh. Which I also watched. That was uh from 2018 when you were there with the kindergarten. Yeah, that was like the first time I really maybe had ever done one of these. Oh really? Well and that's in a long time. I yeah. texted her before this. I was like, guess what I'm gonna talk to? After you turn 40, they're like career retrospective. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they should have done it earlier as far as I'm concerned. And wow, I keep wondering though, like, um, are we gonna keep doing them? Yeah. <laughs> you keep being awesome. So we're gonna keep doing them. Um, this one is from, I'm sorry, Ala? Um, I'm sorry, Ali, maybe. Um, what draws you to certain roles? Huh? Ala. Ala. Okay, good. Sorry, thank you. What draws you to certain roles now as opposed to your early career? Hmm. I'm, I'm just, I'm better at saying no. I still get worried, like, will I ever find anything I love? Will I ever find, like, a great role again? And I get tempted to go, like, this one's pretty good. Um, but I have definitely gotten better at going, like, don't do that. Don't do that. Just wait. Um, and also having children, of course. Um, it's funny. I, I wonder if I can say this in a way that isn't cliche. I just, I, I yeah, I don't want to work on something unless it's really worth it. I was talking to your manager back there, and she said that is that is what you are. And she says, and my hardest job is finding something that I know is worth her at least looking to say yes or no. And I was like, and that, again, I know you say you fear. The fear that you go do these things, to me, does not, when I talk about fearless females or fearless actors and actresses, I'm talking about the people who don't have the intestinal fortitude and the courage to say no. The people that will take the safe role because they're like, nobody's gonna be mad about this movie if I just go play the wife to mm -hmm. some dude's movie. That's the difference. It's mm -hmm. not the being scared when you're doing it because I think anybody can be scared when I think about the roles you've done. It's the fear to say, 
no, I want to do something mm-hmm. that matters to me. That's the fearlessness, especially in Hollywood. You know, that, that to me is the, the My manager there. actually um, really helps me with that. Actually, there are times when I'm like teetering and losing confidence and going like, I could, in the best of all possible worlds, this could be sort of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and she has a few times, like nobody else in my life, been like, don't do it. <laughs> Don't. Uh, something will come. Yeah. And yeah. And then the deuce or the honorable woman or like yeah. any of these amazing roles or more importantly, which we're going to get into in a minute, the lost daughter, which mm. I cannot wait to talk about, mm. but yeah. oh, we're going to do a couple more of these. Um, so this is from Francisco. What did you learn about yourself by playing candy? Um... So many things. <laughs> I'm way cooler than I thought I was. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. <laughs> Sometimes when I was doing it, I was like, I guess maybe I actually am this cool. I, like, I <laughs> you exude a lot of cool in that show. I know. Yeah. And it's way cooler than like I usually exude. But I'm like, I made this. It just yeah. had like some help with some like really good zingers and stuff, <laughs> and really great outfits. Um, I was gonna say, do you get to? I was really gonna ask this because I'm a very, in case y'all can't tell, fan of '70s styles. And mm. so, do you get to keep any of the any of the costumes? You know what I've learned? I've learned that even though I love the clothes of almost all my characters except the kindergarten teacher, I never <laughs> want to see any of those Birkenstocks again. Um, <laughs> I love almost, I mean, Honorable Woman and um, Stranger Than Fiction yes. and The Deuce and so many great clothes and I love picking them and choosing them, but even clothes that would be right up my alley, you know, like sometimes, I, I get them home and they don't feel right on me if I've worn them in a movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I don't even take them. <laughs> well, I mean, I get it. Like, it is costume, so it's like it has but a different But the jeans. Beat. I have wondered about if I should ask about the jeans on the deuce. Because the thing about the jeans is, right, like if you go vintage jean shopping, I am exhausted after like four pair maybe. Yeah. I'll try on and I'm like, ah, never mind. You know? But someone else was shopping for me with my like exact yeah. measurements. And so, you know, I ended up with some great jeans. Those high-waisted ones you wear in that first episode with first the V season. right here, I literally was on Pinterest for like a week being like, yeah. Okay, but I'll tell you something about those jeans. <laughs> I stepped up into like the crew van, to- totally split down the oh. back. <laughs> yeah, they're not practical, I know, but they look so good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay. Um, this is a great one. It's from Hayden James, who's 12 years old. Oh. Um, which, and here? By the way, Hayden, you know how to make your card be the one that gets picked because you wrote at your age. Um, <laughs> um, what do you focus on to prepare? Like, what's your preparation process? Well, Hayden, um, I was at one of those um, round table things <laughs> yes. we were talking about yes. and uh, for like TV and yep. Dave Harbour was there. Oh, yeah. And, the, you know, we were sort of all talking our talk, doing our thing, saying our stuff. And then Dave said, and I don't know Dave really, he said, um, I didn't learn, he said, he didn't learn how to work, really work in a way that worked for him until he was 36. And he said it and I was like, me too. Wow. I worked, I tried, I did stuff I thought would be helpful. I had this acting teacher who, I mean, you know, I studied, I took acting classes, I, I, I studied acting in college some, although it's not what I majored in. I, but I had this acting teacher who really helped me and try, you know, gave me um, 
like a sort of toolkit. But it really wasn't until I was 36, same as Dave Harbour, that I was like, oh, I see how to work for me. And so even though that teacher who I worked with on many of these projects, she died um, after I shot the pilot of The Deuce. Uh, so I did The Kindergarten Teacher and The, the Deuce without her. Um, she actually truly was a teacher because that's gone in. And when I go to work and I sit down with my script, which, you know, nobody ever really wants to work, right? I force <laughs> myself to sit down with my script and do the, like, work. I feel she's there. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very unique thing, too, for an actor to be able to work with someone for that long and have them sort of see your career and, and have a trajectory. And this was not my thing, but how did you have that moment with her where you're like, from like the secretary to like when you got cast in The Dark Knight, which is like a, it was a smaller role, but a huge movie. Like mm. there has to be a moment where you're like, wow, this is, this is definitely taking a different direction. Like this is, this is a different level. Did you have that with her where you were like, um, I feel like I'm here? Or do you ever get that moment? I don't know. <laughs> do you ever feel like you made it? Like you have to at this point, right? Sometimes I feel like, wow, things are going great. And other times I feel so hungry for something that I don't ha I'm hungry for. And I'm like looking for what's next. And where is it? And will it ever come? And um, so with Penny, I mean, she used to have, Penny Allen was her name. Um, she used to have on her wall in her office that... Um, Martha Graham letter that she wrote to Agnes DeMille. Agnes DeMille was struggling artistically and she wrote this beautiful letter where she basically says an artist is never satisfied. Mm. And that it's that hunger that keeps us going. It's such a beautiful letter. Wow. And um, I do think that's true. She's, I mean, I think about her all the time. She's an incredible teacher. And that and Hamilton, never never be satisfied, right? <laughs> I mean, just keep, yeah, I think that, I like that way of looking at it. And honestly, if you're staying hungry and these are the things that you have going on, I just can't wait. Stay hungry. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm very excited. Um, next is Rosie Foss, who is 11 years old. Again, knows how to make her sure card gets picked. Um, oh, so cute. I watched you in Nanny McPhee too yesterday, and you were amazing. Do you have any advice for youngsters like me that love acting? Um, oh, can I say one thing about uh, Nanny McPhee that I'm really proud of? Uh -huh. um, Greta Thunberg told me that she was a fan of mine, and it was from <laughs> Nanny McPhee. Get it. <laughs> that girl's going to save the world. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, well, we're going to have to help her. Yes, yes. That's um, true, true. That's so true. Do I have advice for, for, for youngsters like you? I think that um, I think it's sort of general advice, not just about acting, is that it's all about who you really are. You know, and people will say, you need to be more like this, you need to be more like that, you need to look more like that. You, um, well, really, it's funnier if you do it more like this. Or if you have a sense of what interests you, uh, that's the only way, I think, listening to that, figuring out how to listen to that, which is hard when you're 11, 
um, is the way that you'll be really great to watch. I think is the only way. But it's, you know, I have a daughter who just turned 13, and um, so, and another one who's seven. And um, there comes this little period where, yeah, it's it sort of, you, you hear all the other things around you aside from yourself, which are interesting too, and which you have to take in. But, you know, just keep in mind in your back pocket, like if, if you sort of go like, I think this might be the most interesting way, even though it's unusual, even though it's strange, even though it's not what anyone else is doing, um, if it comes from you, uh, I think it will be pretty fascinating to watch to people who know what's up. Awesome. That is amazing advice. I love that. Um, wow, so awesome. Um, what do you find difficult in terms of internal struggles of being an artist, and how do you work to overcome them? And this is from, oh, they didn't say their name. Sorry. That's a big question. It is a big question. Internal <laughs> struggles of being an artist. Um, I think I try to remind myself that the things that seem difficult and scary to me actually are difficult and scary, and that feeling daunted or afraid or confused um, is very normal and a part of being alive, and um, that's very comforting to me. Um, and also that all of those things, difficulty, struggle, like those are all like gold when you're acting. You know, it's funny, like you see people like try to like squeeze out a tear or whatever, <laughs> and yet, and yet those uncomfortable feelings in life were like, this is, this is not existing, you know? But they're very valuable. Um, I don't know. I don't quite totally understand that question, so I hope that I answered it. I think you did. Okay. I mean, I mean, whatever. Uh, actors, writers, we're all in our heads. <laughs> there's no, there's no exterior. It's all, it's all. I mean, and that is one thing I think, um, in terms of learning how to work. The other young person who asked, and also an answer to that question is one. One of the things I've really realized, and I've come to be able to trust it, but it takes time. Is um. The most valuable thing, like yes, you have to do the like general work. You do have to learn your lines. I don't understand people who come to work with like their sides in their hands and like kind of half know their lines. I don't understand that. But some people like it that way. I don't. It's so much more difficult for me. So the basic, simple work you have to do. But then this other cool thing, which I've just discovered like in the past few years, is um. To just like read a scene, think about it, and just like put it in your head, just like place it there, and don't. Do anything else. I mean, and just see if you have enough space, like what comes up. And I find always something interesting comes up. Um, is, that, is that how you figured out the finger for the secretary? I was going to ask you about this earlier, because I know you said when you were rehearsing the finger scene where you bend over with James Spader, you did something in rehearsal where you put your finger over his, and that's how you signaled consent. No, I, sort of. Okay. Yes. But uh, this is something I was thinking about as a director, because yeah. I think, um, I think, uh, no, what was so almost, that's almost the story. What happened was we were shooting the scene, really intense scene, that spanking scene, so hardcore, and I was so young. And so even more sensitive in a way than I, oh, I don't know if that's true. But I was, I was, it was very intense. And every time we would shoot it, and we were shooting, 
James Bader, it would sort of fall over on top of me and put his hands on the desk. So his hands were here and mine were inside of them. And I just always took my finger and wrapped it around his. I didn't decide to do it. I didn't anticipate doing it. I didn't think about why, but it did happen every time. And I knew that it was important. And I didn't know who to tell to shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I told James and he got someone to shoot it. Wow. And uh, I think about that because I think like a lot of people have been asking me, like, did I always want to be a director? Did I, you know, and the answer is, um, is really no. But I think that that's part of, um, you know, I don't want to be reductive about it, but it's part of the sexist world that, that I grew up in, where I think if you were a lover of stories, a storyteller, and you were me, it seemed more like the path, you know, to do it by being an actress. Mm. Like maybe if it's like 1850 and you're a medical-minded person and you're a woman, you're going to be a nurse. And yet when I like look back on it and I think, okay, now I know, and David Simon jokes, he's like, I, I, I leave an extra 20 minutes when we're doing a scene with you. Because I don't come in and just stand where someone tells me to stand. I come in and I'm like, okay, let's sort this out from a directorial point of view. Like, well, what's the scene about? What are we doing here? And that's part of the way I work. And, um, and I was thinking about it and thinking I've been working that way since the beginning. Wow. That's why I'm so glad to bring up my last question, my last point, which is that soon you're going to start shooting or? I'm in pre-production. Production. I'm going to start shooting next summer. And this is for The Lost Daughter, which is you're adapting. Um, I, I have not read the book, but I do know that it was definitely something that everybody was talking about. And it was a very big deal that this is going to be your first feature. So tell us what folks can know about The Lost Daughter at this point. Um, well, it's an adaptation of uh, an Elena Ferrante book. Um, it's not one of the four uh, Neapolitan novels, which were sort of a sensation. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a smaller, it's an, almost a novella. Okay. Um, there are so many interesting actresses in it, which I can't talk about yet, but that's been such a pleasure to be casting it. And um, I love my actresses. I haven't got any men yet, but I'll come to that. I, I truly love them and um, I mean god I don't know what to say it's really at the forefront of my mind right now I'm in the process of um, I was scouting the other day and it's just like inspiration going off at every turn I never imagined this would look like this and yet it's better than what I imagined or like absolutely that couldn't work you know talking to DPs um, thinking about score and what that means and you know but even like even with the dps it's like I, at first i was thinking there's sort of two sections of my movie well should one section be visually different i just started with that question and then i went what is that's this like an idiot this sort of like means nothing mm. why would one section be different and in terms of storytelling and in terms of what i want to say of course this section would look different than this one this section is about a young woman with two small children who are sucking on her and hungry. And this one is about a woman whose children have left, who's on a beach vacation. Of course they're going to look different. And um, 
things like that just going off in my mind all the time. Also, the fascinating elements of financing it. <laughs> Truly <laughs> yeah. fascinating to yeah. me. And um, everything is new. Not entirely new, but like everything is from a slightly different perspective. And it's, it's like, it's blowing my mind. I've been loving it. And also I've been, I've had the great luxury because it takes place at the beach, in the water, in the summer to have time, mm. which is what I was talking about before. If you have the time and you can just put an idea or a scene in your head and see what comes up from your self. Um, usually that's when the most interesting stuff comes up. So yeah, so I've had time and it's, I still have more time. It's been great. Um, I, I really appreciate, I always love when you talk to actors when they're either right after they directed their first feature or like right now, right before they direct their first feature because it's this amazing moment, I think, with a lot of them where they really look at filmmaking. Like some of these folks, like I, I know that have been on sets for like yourself, decades, mm -hmm. but now filmmaking is new. It's like a new, right. it's like a, a man you've been married to all of a sudden is like a new, a new man that you just started dating sort right. of thing. But I will ask you this, in those decades, you've worked with so many great directors yeah. from Nolan to Mendes. Is there anyone now that you're like, not maybe advice, but you just want to like, maybe have a vent section to be like, how did you get money to make this? Or is there that person that you're calling and saying, okay, I just, I wanna talk about this? So far, I haven't done that, but I do find myself all the time um, leaning on things from directors that have both worked for me or really not worked for me. Mm. One, the, one of like the major thing is that the directors who aren't like pretending that they love you, who truly love you, um, you just get a different kind of work, you know? And, um, and I, I really have benefited so much from being respected by my directors. I have never, ever gotten anything out of somebody sort of forcing me into a corner. Um, I also have learned the only, if you work with people you respect and who respect you, you can kind of hear anything. You can, you, if somebody says, if you, if you respect someone and they ask you to do something that you think is just like totally off the wall, I think you will try and, and vice versa, you know? So I, I'm really only want to work with people I respect. I, I'm looking for a crew where, you know, I, I, keep, I keep thinking like, I'm so into wardrobe, right? <laughs> and I've even written some elements of wardrobe into my script. But if my actress comes and says, oh, no, no, I, I really imagine this completely different, fine. And if I wrote a scene about sparkly red shoes, you know, which I didn't, um, and uh, the costume designer says, yes, yes, I hear you about the shoes, but like, what if she were barefoot? Well, well yeah, like that's what you want, right? So I guess my experiences that have been more like that are the ones that, um, that I'm drawing on now. Well, Maggie, thank you. This yeah. has been so great. Thank you all for listening. I want to thank SAG Afra. And uh, you can watch Maggie on the Deuce. And you can also check out The Lost Daughter when that probably hits the festival circuit in 2020. Let's see. Yeah, maybe. All right. <laughs> thank you guys so much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.